So I'd first like to share a little bit extensively the history of the Lord's move in Russia uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, this was probably the very first time that the whole recovery, East and West, coordinated together to bring the gospel to a certain issue. We hadn't done that before. Uh, the second is it shows the power of strategic prayer, uh, which I'll share. Uh, and also, it was directly under Brother Lee's guidance. When we were in Russia, we called Brother Lee about four times a week. We would rotate, I called it the divine hot seat. We would usually send him our questions by fax, then we'd call him, you know, we'd send him so he'd have them, he'd have all day to think about it, then we'd rotate the divine hot seat. And I say that because it's really infusing to talk to Brother Lee, but it's also kind of scary anyway. And then Brother Lee would advise us in detail. So for five years, we had like regular contact with Brother Lee. He knew, even though he never physically went to Russia, he knew everything that was happening. And it was the one European country that Brother Lee actually personally directed the work uh, along with Benson. So there's, there's some principles that may be very applicable to your labor in Europe that we, we went through in, in Russia. Okay, so to give just a little history, um, in 1979, uh, the brothers in Hong Kong began to be able to have contact with the saints in China that had been closed off for 30 years. You know, the recovery, of course, started in China, then the communists took over and, and it closed off. And the brothers began to make contact with the saints and discovered a couple things. Number one, the number of believers had grown from 3 million in 1948 to probably 30 million by this time, a tenfold increase. It's probably well over 100 million by now. And the believers wanted the ministry books. So a call went out for ones from the West to buy big suitcases, very few clothes, fill them with books and make trips into China because China wasn't checking tourists when they went in uh, from the West. So a brother named Joel Kennan, who had had a burden for Russia many years before, before he came in the recovery, went with another brother. And while he was there and saw how much the Lord was able to do in communist China, despite all the persecution, this rekindled a burden, what about Russia? So he went to uh, Brother Lee and had some fellowship and Brother Lee felt very good. In fact, apparently Brother Lee hit the table and said, let's do it. Uh, and as we, they considered, they realized the vanguard of the Lord's move would be the literature. So the brothers began to investigate and found out that actually Watchman Nee was very popular in the Russian-speaking world, and there were a number of translations. There were some very good missions in Germany that had translated the books and, and were distributing them. So uh, we began then as Rhema. Rhema was formed in 1982. And I would say we began to do two primary things. Number one was to prepare the written ministry that could be the seed of the recovery and the seed of the gospel of the kingdom. And number two was to begin some strategic prayer. And I'd, I'd like to talk firstly about the prayer. So uh, we hired a translator who uh, was unsaved at the time, but a good linguist. And we started praying just for him to get saved, but then right away the burden began to expand. And eventually there were about eight of us brothers in Seattle uh, 
I would say we were all ordinary brothers, working brothers. I was actually working on the U.S. nuclear missile system pointed at Russia. My godfather used to fly B-52s with nuclear bombs around the border of Russia waiting for the order to destroy Moscow. My father was a general in the Air Force. At any rate, so my, my outward orientation was not particularly favorable. But as we began to gather to pray, there was a different feeling in the third heavens about Russia. God didn't want to nuke Russia. He wanted to save Russia. So we used to meet uh, four times a week. We met Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 5.30 a.m. in the morning for about 45 minutes because we were all working brothers. And then we met on Lord's Day for about an hour before service. So we met four times a week. We did this for nine years nine years. And I would just say one of the lessons we learned is the prayer that opens empires of hundreds of millions of people needs to be measured in years, maybe decades. This kind of prayer is not easy because you have to dislodge battle-hardened demons from their positions and influence in order for the Lord to alter the human affairs. So, uh, and, and a characteristic was when we would gather, we were just praying in the basement of the Seattle meeting hall, right? We would rocket to the third heavens. Okay, this particular prayer had a laser focus. We were only focused on God moving. Uh, it was in the Soviet Union, but I'm just going to use the word Russia. And when you hear Russia, I mean the entire former Soviet Union. And uh, the Lord just began to uh, operate as a result of the prayer, and because we probably literally spent a couple thousand hours on our knees over the 1980s, uh, we just started getting anointed with burdens. I'll just share one instance. Uh, one night we were praying, and an anointing came down, almost felt like Elijah's mantle. And we started praying a prayer of righteousness. We had not intended to do this, but just came down. And we asked, Lord, you are the righteous judge of all the earth. There are evil men in this country who are opposing your will, who are, are, uh, are persecuting the saints, frustrating the gospel. Take your sword out of its sheath. Come down to the earth and judge these evil men and take them out of the way and put in men who will do your will. You know, ones like Cyrus and Darius. Uh, I, I would first hasten to add, especially for young brothers, we did not ask the Lord to kill anyone. Okay, please, please understand that. Uh, the Lord has many ways of, of removing people, like Khrushchev was just put out to pasture. Well, at any rate, we prayed this way for about 30 minutes, very strongly, prayer of righteousness. Then we just felt released. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We went home and went to bed, and we woke up the next morning to some news. The general secretary of the party, Leonid Brezhnev, had died. And uh, I later, when I shared this testimony in Moscow about 2011, a sister who was a medical doctor came up to me and she knew the physicians who had been taking care of Brezhnev. And he was old and he was sick, but he was actually rallying. He was, he was getting better. And she said, for some reason they couldn't explain, he just suddenly the course turned and, and, and he died. Well, we realized it was significant, but we didn't understand the full import until several years later. And what that did is it began a change in leadership at the top level. First, a guy named uh, Andropov came on, he was KGB chief, then a guy named Trenyenko, he was the agriculture secretary, and then a man many of you may have heard of named Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in 1985. And eventually history shows he was the man whom God used 
to open the entire Soviet Union for the gospel to run without a civil war. I mean, there's a lot of details we could go into, but anyway, so that's, a, that's an example, just one of the more dramatic examples of the Lord answering prayer. So through the 1980s, the, the Lord began to just do things in the human realm. Uh, pope John Paul II became the first non-Italian Pope in 400 years, and he began to champion human rights and labor unions in Poland responded, and this eventually led to the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, there were other political events took place that over the course of the years eventually opened this whole region up uh, for the gospel. Well, uh, eventually, uh, as we're praying, there's also a feeling to match the prayer with appropriate outward action according to our ability. Well, by 1984, we had some publications ready and we felt we should do like a spy trip. So Brother Joel Kennan and myself, we went for six weeks to the Soviet Union. Uh, outwardly, we were students in a Russian language group, but inwardly we felt like two of the 10 spy, uh, 12 spies, and hopefully we were, jo I believe we were Joshua and Caleb. We brought back a good report. Well, eventually while we were there, uh, we had a few contacts, we made some, the last two weeks we were there, almost every night we were meeting with Russian believers. And the striking characteristic was every believer we met loved Watchman Nee. It turned out the beginning in the 1970s, the Russian believers had gotten probably English manuscripts of Watchman Nee's books, and they translated them, in many cases typing them on a typewriter, doing hand copies, and circulated. So this seemed to us a very strong sign the Lord had already gone before us to prepare the ground for the recovery to come, that every, every single believer we met loved Watchman Nee. Um, and in those days, the hunger was so great that if you wanted to reach 10 cities with a publication, you only needed 10 copies of the book, one copy to each city, because the seeking believers would form a reading chain. You would get like, Nathaniel would get the book, say, The Economy of God or The Normal Christian Life. He would have 24 hours to read it. Then he would pass it on to the next person who would have 24 hours to read it to the next person. So in two years, maybe 500 people in that city would read, uh, you know, would read one copy of a book. So through the 1980s, ultimately, we probably only were able to get 10,000 copies of the books into the Soviet Union. I'll tell a few stories in, in a few minutes. But our readership may have been a half a million or more because of the, the hunger of the situation. Um, well, by 1985, we had a number of books ready to distribute, but we had a problem. We didn't know, we didn't know how to get them into Russia. It was illegal, right, to import religious books. So the Lord, in his sovereignty, uh, had arranged for a uh, a very faithful brother who was with the largest mission group called Slavic Gospel Association in the States. He had edited and put out the book, The Spiritual Man, Volume 1 by Watchman Nee. So we wrote him. He was visiting Seattle. We met him. And we found out that he was going to be traveling all up and down West Germany. Okay, Germany was still divided at that time into East and West. Visiting Russian congregations. And we were like, uh, what? What? Russians, East, West Germany, what's going on? And he explained the history that 300 years ago, Mennonites who were being persecuted, uh, German Mennonites, were invited by Catherine the Great to settle, especially in Ukraine, to develop agriculture. 
and promised exemption for military service. And so large numbers migrated there and lived in Russia for the next 300 years. Um, and uh, eventually, through some uh, various historic circumstances, uh, there were some big waves of migration in the 1890s that went to uh, like uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, and the Dakotas and, and parts of America. Uh, then the revolution came and cut them off. Then in, during World War II, when Hitler invaded Ukraine, this is where a lot of these Russian Germans were, uh, they were exiled by Stalin to Siberia. So I met a lot of brothers eventually who grew up in Siberia, even brothers who had been in prison camps for the faith for years. In fact, one brother told us, when I told him about the full-time training, he says, oh, he says, you know, we used to have a full-time training in our prison camp. We dug a cave somewhere that the guards couldn't see, and we would gather there from time to time to study the Bible. Yeah, so we, we had a training too. Anyway, um, uh, eventually uh, they were allowed to migrate back from Siberia. And in the 70s, the Soviet Union signed a human rights treaty called the Helsinki Accords, which allowed people to apply to migrate to their homeland of national origin. So by the mid 1980s, there were probably three or 400,000 Russian Germans who had migrated. They grew up in the Soviet Union. Russia was their mother tongue. Russian was their mother tongue. But they came and settled, and so there were 70 large congregations in West Germany of native Russian speakers who had grown up in the Soviet Union and migrated. And they had ways of getting books in. When they saw the books we had, they loved Watchman Nee, and they began to really appreciate Witnessly. And so we would just give them the books, and they would take them in. How? We didn't ask. They didn't tell us. But they had ways of getting books in. Then the Lord began to open another channel. In 1986, there was a book fair in Leipzig, Germany. Some of you may remember we had the elders training there in 2018 or 17. Anyway, um, and this book fair was, it was open to the public, but there were two restrictions. You couldn't sell books and you couldn't give them away for free. It was uh, mainly where booksellers, official booksellers could come and place orders and the public could see your books, but you couldn't actually dis distribute directly. Well, uh, the brothers went, Lebenstrom went and had books, both German and Russian. And uh, they noticed after a couple of hours that their books were all disappearing from the shelves. I wonder what, what's going on? They were in a kind of a group with Christian booksellers in a section. And so some of the other, other booksellers cued him in. They said, well, listen, there's a habit, a practice in this country uh, that uh, even though you can't sell the books and you can't give them away, this doesn't mean that people cannot steal them. And so the believers would come and they'd have like, you know, a coat with big pockets or a big purse or a bag, and they would just look at the book and then they would steal the book. So the brothers called back to Stuttgart and said, hey, hey, you got you to gotta, you gotta fill some vans with books and bring them over here so the saints can steal them. Well, if you can get a book across the communist border, across the Warsaw, Warsaw Pact border, going from East Germany into Russia was really easy. The, the checks were much less oh, stringent. So that was one way books began to flow in a certain larger quantity. I also got a chance uh, with some brothers. We smuggled some books into Budapest. Uh, we had a contact there. And uh, as we were crossing the border, we had our trunk filled with Russian books and German books. And 
And Hungary was pretty liberal, but even so, it was still illegal. And so we thought we'd, we'd just see what we could do. Uh, the, as we were going through the border, the car in front of us, they stopped, everybody got out, they had them pull out every piece of luggage, open every piece of luggage, and we were thinking, oh, Lord Jesus, what's going to happen to us? Well, praise the Lord, the saints had gotten up in the middle of the night to pray for us. And when our turn came, we had a German brother with us, and the guard said, do you have anything to declare? And the brother, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said, coffee. And the guard just smiled and waved us through. So we met this, this brother, and his means of getting books in was, if you had addresses in the Soviet Union, there would be Bulgarian truck drivers who would bring goods from, say, Ukraine or Moldova, and they would drive to Hungary and drop their goods off, and they'd get Hungarian goods and drive back. Then maybe the next week, they'd drive into Ukraine. So for a little bit of money, if you put together packets of books, and it should be good Russian, you know, the paper should be a little dirty, a little bit torn, you know, it should look a little bit worn out, you know, so it's a standard thing. They could drop those in the mail in the Ukraine, in the Soviet Union system, and of course, nobody would look at it. It was an internal thing. And his mother was a Communist Party official. So anyway, we park on the street and we're carrying all these, these books up. I'm actually freaking out a little bit because in Russia, you just couldn't do that openly, but he's like, ah, don't worry about it. So we have all these books in his mother's apartment and suddenly his mom comes home and she looks at all these books. She looks at us, she looks at her son and she literally does this. She closes her eyes like this and says, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And she turns away and walks out of the, walks out of the apartment. Anyway, so, so books began, you know, to go out. Well, uh, by the late eighties, um, Gorbachev had begun to promote some policies called Glasnost and Perestroika, openness and sort of rebuilding. And this began to change the atmosphere inside the country. Again, this is part of the Lord operating in human history to make it suitable for the divine history. Well, we had a P.O. box in America printed in the back of our books, but we never got any letters. In fact, we were thinking about closing it because we never got any mail. And the reason is, if somebody had written us a letter from the Soviet Union to America, they go on a KGB watch list and it could be bad for them. But the country was liberalizing. So in November 1988, we got our very first letter from a bold saint in Ukraine that they got, they got our books and they wanted more. So we decided to try and start mailing books from the US. In fact, uh, the saints in Irving, Texas started mailing books. Well, uh, by 19, early 1990, we had received over 1,000 letters from the Soviet Union, from believers and congregations who had gotten our books and wanted more. So uh, uh, this was the Lord just you know, beginning to open the way to start having fellowship. Well, in early 1990, the, we heard that the law forbidding importation of religious books had been dropped. So we thought, well, let's, let's, let's give it a try. Let's see what we can do. So we shipped five tons of books to Stockholm, Sweden, and we rented a van and a truck, and we ended up making two trips into the Soviet Union, visiting especially large registered congregations that had requested our books. I remember we were in one city, and we met the bishop of the Baptist church, whose kind of influence went all the way up to like Murmansk and Arkhangelsk. 
And so we probably left about a ton of books with him and he would distribute them to his congregations. So this was the beginning of, of what I would call mass distribution, which is really Rhema's specialty is mass free distribution. Uh, well, at the same time, and this is a second line, okay, so, so we've been laboring in prayer and we've been laboring in the distribution of ministry books as the vanguard. Well, now comes a third line, and this is the actual direct work to raise up a golden lampstand in Russia itself. And so what happened is in February of 1990, three Russian ladies from Moscow went to visit a sister named Valentina in um, the Dallas area. And while they were there, I mean, they were just going for vacation. While they were there, they got saved, they got baptized, they were in the church life for about two weeks, and they wanted what they saw in Dallas, they wanted in Moscow. Well, we knew about them, so two months later, when we made these trips with the books, during the day, we would distribute the books to Christian leaders, and at night, we started meeting with these three sisters. So the first night, it was a mother, her daughter, and an older best friend. The mother's, uh, the, the father of the family got saved and baptized, and a cousin got saved and baptized. Then a couple days later, another best friend got saved and baptized, and then another couple days later, another sister, uh, Tanya Pushkova, you probably know her, Nathaniel. This is uh, Alexander Arkhipienko. At any rate, Tanya got saved and baptized. It was one of the most dynamic baptisms I ever remember. She prayed to receive the Lord. And as we were baptizing her, when she came up out of the water, she said, I can feel him, I can feel him, I can feel him, I can feel him. Well, her husband, I believe, was a colonel in the Russian military guarding the Kremlin. Um, and, and his wife, you know, she gets saved. So, so the church life now has expanded to seven. And eventually, by the time we actually arrived in the fall of 1991, there actually were already 30 saints meeting as the church in Moscow uh, that had been meeting for about a, about a year and a half. Um, also during this trip, the Lord opened uh, quite a door. Uh, we met a group uh, in a place called Kopina, just outside of Leningrad, a group that loved especially Brother Witness Lee. They just loved him. Well, through them, we got in touch with a mission in Germany of these German Mennonites. One of the members was one of these, these German-Russian Mennonites called Stephanus. Uh, that when they met us and they found out that we had books by Watchman and Witness Lee, they said, listen, we've got networks to hundreds, if not thousands of congregations all over the Soviet Union could you give us your books? If you give us the books, we'll get them into the country. And we said, sure, how many books do you want? They said, we'd like 1 million copies of each of your books, plus the New Testament. Okay, that's 6 million books. We thought, wow, that's a lot of books. So we didn't have that much money. So we, we fellowship with Brother Lee and Brother Lee said, okay, we'll do the New Testament way. We'll give them a tenth. Okay, that's still 600,000 books. That is nine 40-ton rail cars. Okay, this is really beginning mass distribution. And because of the economic liberalization, we were able to place an order for our books inside the Soviet Union. We met a, a, a factory, a print, excuse me, a print factory in Kiev. And I was able to print, to give you an idea of the economics, 
I could print a hardbound economy of God for 14 US cents, 14 cents. So, and what these guys would do, uh, this, this mission in Germany gave us nine regional centers of theirs spread all over the Soviet Union. And as the books were printed, they would fill a rail car and send it to the first center, fill the second rail car, send it to the second center, fill the third rail car, send it to the third center. So eventually these books went out all over the Soviet Union. Uh, we, we ultimately probably passed out over 15 million pieces of literature in the former Soviet Union. In fact, uh, a relative of one of the brothers who was a missionary complained to us. He says, you guys, he says, everywhere I go, I go to Siberia, I see your books in the believer's shelves. I go to this place, I go, everywhere I go in Russia, you guys have your books. You know, he's kind of complaining. But praise the Lord, That's, that was our intention, you know. And another uh, uh, very well-regarded local brother in Russia, in the, in the denominations, told us that 80% of the teaching among evangelical Christians in the former Soviet Union was based on the writings of Watchmania and Witness League. So anyway, the literature really did a good job to, to, to saturate. Um, so, uh, you know, we've got this sort of start of the church life. But... It's important to realize, brothers and saints, the books alone are not enough. They're very helpful. They're the first step. And of course, they're the vanguard. But for saints to come into the Lord's recovery, there must be personal shepherding. Back one time, I uh, was alone with Brother Lee in, in one of the upper rooms in Seattle. He was giving a conference, and I was a scribe writing down the outline. And we got to having some fellowship. And he made a kind of startling comment. He said, you know, Christianity has sold millions of Watchmen these books, and it's still Christianity. So he was very, very concerned, not only that we would put books out, but that we would follow up to contact the readers of these books. Because ultimately, for new ones to come into the recovery, uh, you know, when they read the books, they read them according to their concept and their understanding. And so they need to come in living contact with the recovery to see what God's economy looks like when it's in practice. So, uh, uh, nineteen ninety one comes around, and we have the Hundred Hour War. You know, the war against Saddam Hussein in Kuwait. And afterwards, at the end, Brother Lee realized the whole situation had changed. And then the Memorial Day Conference in nineteen ninety is the book called "The World Situation and the Direction of the Lord's Move." I think this is a lot of the saints have read this book. And it was decided that that's when Brother Lee gave a call that we need to migrate firstly to East Germany and then to Russia. And eventually through some fellowship, everybody decided to go to Russia. So uh, the first thing we did was uh, the, there was a training school set up in Anaheim that saints were gonna go. Uh, I think Nathaniel, your, you know, your parents joined that school. Uh, about, there were about 30 saints that joined. Yeah. Well, there was going to be a big, sorry, yeah, there was going to be a big book fair in Moscow in August. Uh, I mean, the biggest event in the Soviet Union. I mean, millions of people go to this thing. So we, we applied and registered to get a, a spot there. And we uh, printed 50,000 pieces of literature. We were going to go there, Benson, myself, uh, Brother Joel, and uh, Brother Bob Little. Well, shortly before this book fair, there's an attempted coup in August, Gorbachev's put under house arrest in Crimea. 
and the old guard tries to take over. And then Yeltsin stands up. He's been elected president of Russia. And there had been a growing class of young people who were entrepreneurs that didn't want to lose that. So eventually you have the pictures of Yeltsin standing on the tank and the whole coup collapses. So we show up, I mean, literally probably a week after the tanks have cleared the street. And the whole place is just in, in divine chaos, I would call it. I mean, nobody kind of knew what was going on. So we, we arrive with all this material. Eventually the book fair gets canceled. Just it's too, too chaotic, but we've got all this massive material. So I don't know quite who got the bright idea. We're trying to think, so what can we do with this stuff? We were staying in a hotel called the Ismailovsky Hotel in kind of northeast Moscow. Well, Moscow has a metro system that moves 8 million people a day. So if you stand in front of a major station, you might have 20, 30,000 people walk past you in the rush hour. So we brothers went down uh, to the station. I was kind of the hawker calling out, if you want free Christian books, fill out this form, we'll send them to you from America. And we got 2,000 orders that morning from the local metro station. So we thought, wow, this is fantastic. So we said, well, listen, let's, let's go downtown. So we went to the Biblioteca Imanalianada, the Lenin Library, which is right off the main gate working into the Kremlin. I mean, where we were standing, you could look at the main gate into the Kremlin. It's a huge metro station where four lines intersect. And so we set up outside and we got about 3,000 orders. I mean, we just got mobbed. So the next morning, we decided, man, that's a really good place. Let's go down and, and uh, you know, place these order forms for books. And it starts to rain. And uh, the, the uh, local saints in Moscow were helping us. In fact, what we do is in the evening, we'd go to uh, Alexander Arkhipenko's apartment and we would sort all of the orders to get them, you know, kind of bundled them and packaged. So the saints came with us and they thought, well, let's, let's go ask the head of the station if we could set up just inside out of the rain. So they go in and they talk to her. Well, here's the story. The day before her daughter had got, who was suicidal. Her daughter had psychological depression. She was thinking about committing suicide. The mother didn't know what to do. Anyway, the daughter had come by and had gotten one of our flyers and there was enough gospel material. On it. it wasn't just an advertisement of the book. We actually had content on it. She got saved <laughs> and the mother saw the difference. So she said, come with me. And she led us down to the very center of the station, a huge rotunda where like three big escalators come up. Nathaniel, you would have gone through that area many, many times. And we started, you know, advertising our books. And I, I think we have a video somewhere. I'm sorry, I don't know where it is. If you looked at this big rotunda all the way around the walls, everybody's there with their paper, filling out their order form for their books. Well, eventually, Saints, we got 15,000 orders in Moscow and then 10,000 orders from St. Petersburg. 25,000 orders for our books. And so then um, we went back and had fellowship with Brother Lee and Brother Lee realized there was a particular atmosphere. I, I, I can't describe, everybody we met in Russia seemed like they wanted a Bible, they wanted to talk about God because it was like the barn doors had been blown off and the cows were finally let out into the pasture or running around, didn't know quite what to do. Um, and so eventually it was decided to send the saints early in November. So we went back in um, October 
in order to mail out all these books, we did an emergency print order in Kiev. They shipped it to Moscow. The Lord led us to a postal co-op that mailed them all out fairly quickly, uh, along with an invitation for the, uh, the, the gospel seminars. Then the saints arrived in November. And at first we were trying to rent, like a, Brother Lee's original plan was, get a 10,000 person stadium and have a week of gospel meetings in Moscow, then a few weeks later, get a 10,000 person stadium and, and do it in St. Pete. Well, you have to rent these things like a year, year and a half in advance. Just, you know, just doesn't work that way. So then Brother Lee got a brilliant idea. He said, okay, let's do this. Hold five weeks of gospel meetings, six meetings a night, in smaller venues like theaters that hold 1,000 to 1,500 people. That was easy to do. And then we'll do the same in, in St. Petersburg. That just turned out to be a stroke of genius. So the very first night, okay, we, we're learning a lot of lessons as we're going along. I mean, you know, never seen anything like this before. So we rent a sports stadium with 4,000 seats. And we've mailed out invitations with these 25,000 books, especially the 15,000 in Moscow. And you know, we're just kind of, how many people are gonna come? How many people are gonna come? So we're there our very first gospel meeting night in this 4,000 seat stadium. And Trevor, do you know how many people came? Take a guess, 75. There was like two people here, you know, three people way up at the top, two people down here, just 75 people. <laughs> but they all got saved and we baptized 24. I don't think in the history of the recovery we'd ever baptize 24 new ones in a day. So we used to always joke, our worst night in Russia was better than our best night in America. Well, Benson realized, okay, okay, we got to do so. There are various reasons why that, that happened. Number one, the Russian postal system isn't the most reliable. Anyway, so we started handing out 100,000 invitations a week through the Moscow subway system. And then when we went to St. Pete, we upped it to a quarter million a week. In St. Pete, we passed out 1.25 million invitations in five weeks. And so by, by uh, the last Lord's Day, we're up to about 600 people. And then the very final meeting, uh, we probably had 1,500 people and we baptized 165. And the only reason we couldn't baptize more is, you may not have ever thought about this, but there's actually technology involved in mass baptism. You read the verse that they baptized 3,000 in Acts 2, and you probably say, oh, okay. Well, you might have to actually think, what would, Nathaniel, what would you have to do if you had to baptize 3,000 people in a short period of time? Okay. In fact, your dad was our, your dad was our technical guy on pools. Anyway, we, we eventually bought 600 yellow rain suits so people could change their clothes from London, and we bought five of those really big youth pools so we could have five or four teams or five teams each. Anyway, we, could, we, we eventually got a little better at it. But this time we only baptized 165. We were cutting towels in half and then cutting them in a quarters because we were running out of towels. We just didn't have enough supplies. And so boom, we've suddenly got 600 new ones uh, in the church in Moscow. And I remember the very first table meeting in January of 1992, we were in a theater and it's a typical Russian theater. It's kind of cold, it's kind of dark. And we're having the table meeting with 600 people 95% of whom had not been saved six weeks before. Wow. So boom. And Brother Lee had a pattern. And his pattern was, you need to develop two strong model churches of typical Russian citizens 
as models for the rest of the country. So we even told us, don't travel for three years. Build up these large churches, because this kind of unlimited atmosphere, I mean, we, we had high school principals begging us to come to their school. They'd gather their student body so we could preach the gospel. I mean, that's illegal in America. Anyway, you, you could do anything you wanted if you had some chutzpah in that time. You just had to be bold. Uh, got, got a lot of stories along this kind of line. So that was the, the main labor for the first three years was building up two strong lampstands. Well, then I'll uh, move on a little bit. The uh, Oh, let me just uh, share my screen. I do want to share with you a little two-minute video that has a shot of these gospel meetings. So yeah. I'll go ahead and share my screen here. Let me go. Okay, I hope all of you can see it. Here we go. Preparations began for the mass distribution of ministry literature as these dynamic changes unfolded. Now, ministry literature could be printed and distributed freely within Russia, and it was also possible to have large quantities of books warehoused in cities like Moscow. This was the Lord's due. Before that time, the distribution of Christian books required time-consuming hand-copying of a few precious originals. The packages shown here were being loaded onto trucks and then taken to waiting railroad cars to be distributed all over Russia, a vast country that needed the knowledge of God. The fruit of literature distribution combined with the labor of gospel preaching was thousands of Russians being saved and baptized. Eventually, this led to many local churches being established in the former Soviet Union. The Lord's move to Russia became a significant step in the preaching of the gospel to the whole inhabited earth. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole inhabited earth for a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Amen. So, Brother so, John, what were we looking at there exactly? Or I mean, which the, city the, was that? Yeah, that last video. That, that was St. Pete. So I was actually the brother praying. And there were probably about 1,500 people there, so we rented a theater. Okay. So that was one of the gospel meetings, I believe, in the uh, spring of 1992. But that gives you good atmosphere. Okay, we would pass out Bibles. And then frequently we would ask, how many of you are holding a Bible in your hand the first time in your life? And it'll be like 90% of the people would stand up. Mm. And then when we would lead them to pray, in fact, I remember the first night we led them to pray, everybody stood up to pray and we weren't sure they understood. So we had them all sit back down again and repeated the gospel call. And everybody stood up again and wanted to pray. And then uh, they would get baptized afterwards. And um, 
I would say, I mean, it was a very genuine experience on their part. It was just a, a, a spiritual explosion that took place. So eventually we led a little over 30,000 to the Lord and we baptized 7,000 in those two big gospel campaigns. Uh, and that became the basis of the church in Moscow, St. Pete. Now, I'd, I'd just like to turn a little and bring in, bring back literature and literature's role in the spread of the Lord's recovery as illustrated in Russia. Well, in the summer of 92, about six weeks at, or six months after all of the start, we realized we needed a training for the saints. So we held a training in Moscow. And that was a six-week training. Brother Paul Hahn was with us, and the saints were gathering six days a week and uh, going over a thing called Seven Wonders of the Bible. Well, one night, I go home to the hotel. I mean, and I am dead tired. And when I get there, the, uh, the, the key lady, the Jujurnaya, says, uh, there's two gentlemen who want to talk to you. So I get there, and there's these two guys. I've never met them before. They've got their suitcases. It's obvious they're expecting us to put them up. And my initial reaction is, man, what kind of terrible character? Who are you guys? You just show up on my doorstep, you know? But I had just enough grace to hold my fire for, okay, it's like, okay, I'll give you 30 seconds. And they begin to share their story. These two brothers were from a city called Rostov-on-Don in the south of Russia. Mm. And what had happened was during our gospel campaign six months before in Moscow, we had put an ad in, was sort of like the, the New York Times Sunday Magazine, sort of the equivalent. It had a readership of 100 million. It's called Argumenti Facti. Mm. Advertising the gospel meetings and using the names Livingstream and Rama. Well, they had gotten the recovery books smuggled into them four years before. They had been an Adventist group, but began to realize that wasn't the way. And they began to gather around the ministry books, especially Brother Lee. They really enjoyed Brother Lee. Well, when they saw that ad, they said, wow, these guys are here. So two of them flew up. At that time, the round trip ticket, this was about a 600 mile trip, was $5. You could buy a round trip ticket in the equivalent. So they attended the gospel meeting and uh, made contact, I think, with some saints in District 4. But for some reason, that information never got passed up to the co-workers. We didn't know about them. But they knew we were there. Well, then in June, one of their sisters is migrating to America. She has to go to Moscow for her, her uh, documents. And the brothers say, listen, you got to meet with the church there in Moscow. So she starts, she attends this training. She can't believe it. So she calls back to the brothers and brothers, you got to get up here. There's this training. So that's these, these two brothers that show. So eventually there's four of them that come. And by the end of the training, they have been caught for the Lord's recovery. I mean, they stand up in the very last meeting and they declare, we are the church in Rostov. You know, of course, the crowd goes wild. Um, and we're a little slow on the uptake, you know, and it's like we've been pumping all these books out, right? The 600,000 books went out with the 940-ton rail cars. We have the 25,000 orders. We, you know, books are all over the place. Well, now we suddenly, hey, I wonder if we should invite some of these readers, you know, to come visit us. So the uh, next training, a year later, we asked the brothers, brothers, could you give us 60 beds? Okay, these trainings were pretty big affairs. We might rent like 400 beds in a dormitory. And we added a thought, well, I wonder what response rate we'll have. We thought, well, maybe one and two response. So we went through all our letters, because we got a lot of letters, sent out 120 invitations, and really right about 60 people showed up. These are Rhema readers from, I mean, 
as far as, I forget if we had anybody from Vladivostok, but I mean, we had people from all over the, the Soviet Union come. And invariably about 25% of them would decide this isn't their thing, okay? We'd have some Pentecostal groups that would have tongue speaking meetings on the roof of the dormitory and would decide we're demon possessed. I've, I've had demons cast out of me several times, so I'm very clean, praise the Lord. And they would leave in a huff. And eventually over half would stay though. And, and these were the ones. And we gave them the opportunity uh, to apply for the full-time training in Moscow, which the Russian saints forced us to start a year before we wanted to. Russians are really good at making you feel guilty, so you do what they want you to do. They, they heard about the training. They said, we need the training. Are, are you going to leave us orphans, starving, you know, blind and uneducated? You know, you got to give us the training. So, okay, 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 we'll start the training. Uh, in fact, Brother Joe Davis came and was the first headmaster for the first semester. Anyway, they could have a chance to apply the second week of the training. And you have to listen to this statistic and think about it a little bit. For the first 10 years of the training in Moscow, which eventually was like 100, 150 people, it was big. Over 50% of the two-year graduates of the full-time training in Moscow, the first 10 years, were Rama readers from all over the country who came to their very first recovery event. That was this training and applied for the training at the event. And it was a very interesting crew. We eventually learned, we had to ask questions on the application like, have you been in prison? And if you've been in prison, what was your crime? I mean, believe me, these were, a lot of these were like genuine pagans who had just gotten saved. So we had a lot of, right, the brothers had a lot of adventures with, it was quite a, these were not like church kids, right, who had grown up. This, this was something else. Um, so, <laughs> Eventually, almost all the churches in Russia, if you trace the former Soviet Union, if you trace their history, they were Rama readers who we invited and they came to an event, a two-week training in Moscow and got captured and then began the, you know, the fellowship and the work. So uh, anyway, there's probably more we could share, but that, that gives you a, so just to summarize a few principles here. Uh, when Brotherly sent us to Russia, he was very, very strong. He said, saints, do not go after the expats. You need to go after the local Russians. So you need to learn to speak Russian. You need to wear Russian clothes. You need to eat Russian food. You need to live on the Russian level. And they need to abide by Russian customs. Okay? I mean, it was just, it was a very strong, clear move, uh, you know, uh, need. And because this is uh, even kind of at one point shared, if you go to a country, you need to ask the question, who wrote the constitution? Who established the government? Who established the universities? Who wrote the great works of literature? Who painted the great works of art? Those are the people you have to gain in the local churches if you want to see the recovery strongly rooted. So from day one in, in Russia, we started out basically 100% Russian. Uh, that, that, was, that was who we got. There were about 30 co-workers and 600 Russians, eventually 60 co-workers and 1,200 Russians. So the meetings immediately began in Russian. And uh, we actually then started to have to develop, I realize my time's going so I can't expand, but we needed to develop a Jesusly Russian culture and language. Uh, we needed to figure out how to share everything of the Lord's recovery in the Russian language. And it's not just a matter of, of reading a dictionary. I'll just give you a quick example. This is pretty universal. 
trans, we, Benson formed a, a, just a machine, a factory machine to start churning out uh, recovery books in Russian, had like 10 full-time translators. We were also giving messages to teach the new ones, because these were all, un, you know, the brand new believers. And so these same written translators were the oral translators. So we might use a phrase in a meeting, like say, deals with, okay, that's kind of an unusual phrase. And the translator would say, well, let me try translation variant A. And he would share it, and the saints would just sit there kind of, there's no, no reaction. So it's like, oh, okay, that must not be the way to say it in Russian, because their spirit didn't respond. Then you think, 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 well, maybe I, maybe I say it variation B. A week later, the brother shares that in the, the oral message. The translator uses variant B, and the saints all go, amen! You know, so, okay, that, that's how you say that. So... It actually takes, in my experience, about 10 years with several hundred saints, native language saints practicing the church life, to actually work out all the vocabulary of the Lord's recovery, because certain words in that language will match the spirit. Anyway, um, and the other thing we did is we just gave the saints, we got them addicted to the ministry books. The best thing you can do for new ones is get them to read the ministry uh, number one, Brother Lee can teach God's economy way better than you can. I mean, it's not that you don't share, but anyway, Brother Lee does a better job than, than you will do. So you don't need to give them your version of God's economy. The other thing is it avoids them getting connected to personalities who may eventually rebel and carry saints away. So Russia actually has been relatively peaceful. We've only had a couple of relatively minor dust-ups over the years. Uh, and I think part of it is because the saints got addicted to the ministry. So their loyalty then is not to persons. Their loyalty is to the truth. 